Hey, I'm Mark. And I'm Parker. Welcome to the 10th episode of Shortcasts. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you've been with us before, then welcome back. Shortcasts is a podcast where we talk about the Shortcuts app for iOS. If you have a question about any episode or Shortcuts in general, you can send us a DM on Twitter, a message on our Discord server, or in the Shortcuts Discord server, and we'll get to it in one of the upcoming episodes. You can also send us a voice message on Anchor, and we can include it in one of the future shows and interact with you a little bit more that way. If you enjoy the show, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. By the way, we have a new Twitter account, at Shortcasts1. We had to create this new account recently because of some issues that we had with the old account, so you can safely unfollow the old account if it's even active. But we also have an exciting new announcement, the Shortcast Podcast Shortcut. This is a podcast player that you can either download the episode media to your device or iCloud, or you can stream it directly. We'll put the link to it in the show notes, and you can check it out at your free time. So with that, let's uh, get started into the show. Yes, let's. Today we're going to cover something that a lot of users might not have a need for, but I do know that there's a lot of people who have HomePods, and they like to see what kind of usage that they can get with their HomePod, and they know shortcuts run on them. So, Parker, let's uh, jump right into it. This is my area in terms of shortcuts. Um, I'm very excited, mostly because with the HomePod Mini, I feel like the barrier for entry into the HomePod system, uh, and really HomeKit, has actually gotten lower. You know what I mean? Because HomePods serve two functions. One is they act as an interface to your smart home, and two, they act as a satellite device for your existing iOS devices. And where that pertains to shortcuts is that there are a lot of tricks and tips and tricks you can use with the HomePod to really amp up your either your smart home or your shortcut life with uh, with the shortcuts. Yeah, but but effectively, the HomePod's a great tool for this, and I, I feel like it might go underutilized because when most people think of using Siri for shortcuts, they think of using their iPhone, but they don't feel like they understand the utility of how that would benefit with a HomePod, all things considered. Yeah, I definitely agree, and it's it's always a tricky one, and I think we touched on it maybe before, but I don't have a HomePod, so this area is something that I've always leaned on you for, especially <laughs> in, in the subreddit and on Discord, um, oh, but it's, it's definitely interesting. One thing I was going to ask you about, the when the shortcuts are, are running on the HomePod, they're actually running from the phone that it's linked to, right? Yes. So um, effectively, to set up shortcuts access for your uh, HomePod, you need to enable personal requests. And my suggestion would be to disable authentication for, uh, for secure requests. So there's two settings for it. Uh, there's enable authentication, which means you have to go to your phone and authorize it. 
or there is only, a, or you can set it to never, and it will just send messages or run shortcuts without authorization. The only time it will then prompt for authentication is if you're doing something like unlocking a door or opening the garage or something like that. That's when it will prompt for authentication at that point. But uh, yeah, that's your kind of your first step is to enable personal requests, make sure recognize my voice is on, and then uh, set. I would set the personal request authentication for never. Um, gen generally speaking, that's the way. Uh, it would be best ideal for shortcuts. Oh, okay. That makes sense then. Yeah, and, and uh, Apple has a couple pages that go over just kind of how to set that up. But yeah, it's pretty simple just in the home app in the home settings. Because if you have a HomePod, you've probably set up the home app at some point. You know, it's already all there. So that's, that's right. where the settings for your HomePod are. Further on the home app, I know with the home automation section in the shortcuts app, you have to have a, a home hub set up, right? With an Apple TV or another device, like uh, I think it requires an iPad, right? Well, so the devices, this is why I'm really excited about the HomePod mini, right? Because it makes the barrier for entry for this like super low. Because the devices you need to automate with the home hub or have remote access, it's those two things, are either an Apple TV fourth generator, an iPad that is plugged in constantly. Uh, so if the iPad's unplugged, it won't act as a hub. The HomePod and HomePod Mini also act as home hubs. So those three devices are what you would look for in terms of having a home hub. And one question I, I see pretty regularly is people seem to think that HomeBridge connect as a home hub. It's not the same thing. And that is definitely like one really key distinction I would make is that a bridge is not the same. Oh, so HomeBridge can't actually create the home hub like it can with a lot of the other. Yeah, all I guess devices all, that. Yeah, HomeBridge. All it is is just a bridge, right? Like if you've ever used a Philips Hue bridge, that just acts as a bridge to interface with devices that can't natively communicate with HomeKit. So all all it does is it just kind of acts as a stopgap, so all the devices can be added. You know, it's not actually a, an automation hub. That's not what it's designed for. It's designed to just take things like your TP-Link plugs that don't have HomeKit support and just bring it into HomeKit, and that's all it does. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I've been playing around with HomeBridge a little bit now that I've got it installed, and it's pretty nice having everything right there in the Home app. Yeah, it's, that's kind of the key. I think... Uh, I think one of the big things people don't seem to think about with these smart home ecosystems is that the application you use needs to be like really good. And while the home app's not perfect, in my opinion, uh, it has a lot of improvements that it could make like to the UI and stuff like that. And some, you know, basic user stuff I think could be improved, like how automations are made. Um, I do think it's far and away better than most smart home interface applications. Really egregious example would be the Google home app. It is atrocious. <laughs> don't use it. <laughs> Unless you have to. And uh, Amazon Echoes is... The Amazon Alexa one is pretty okay. I've been setting up some people uh, with smart homes. And Alexa's been kind of the overwhelming favorite. And uh, they they find the app is okay for this kind of stuff. But they would just rather use their Alexa to kind of interface with the home. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Generally speaking, uh, with the HomePod, there's a couple like things that you can do to design your shortcuts to make them more human. And I've talked about a lot of these before on the show, in terms of like neat things you can do with the HomePod to make really, really smart automations 
or really, 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 really smart uh, shortcuts that interface naturally and humanely with the user, or the user can interface naturally and humanely with. Um, I mean, no one likes a, a janky device to interface with, and so there's a lot of tricks we can use. Um, I've designed the Siri Homebridge Manager, uh, which is a natural language interface for Homebridge, and this kind of leads into how you can interface with HomePod to make your shortcuts a little bit more intelligent for you, and one of them is by designing natural language processing actions. There are a myriad of ways that you can do this. One such example is to uh, use a list with a few keywords that it's going to look for. And IMUP uses this, my other shortcut that does a lot of this stuff, where if you want to confirm something, you can create a list or a dictionary of um, items that it can listen for as an authentication. So like, uh, do you want to hear the weather? You can put in yes, yep, okay, absolutely, sure, and just have a list of that. Then you can have it match that text. And if the matches have a result, so you use an if statement, if matches has a result, it can then process into that, that branch of, okay, I will tell you that weather action. The Siri Homebridge Manager, however, does things a little differently and uses another method, which would be uh, utilizing ask for input, changing the case of that input, and then looking at the request and determining what keywords are inside of it. Uh, a really good example of what that tool can do is you can say, it'll ask, what do you want to do? And you can say, I'd like to check if Homebridge is running. And so it'll look at that, and it'll probably ignore most of that, but it looks for a keyword, running, and then goes, okay, so this person would like to know if the service is running. So I will check the status of the service. If it is running, using an API call, it will then return a yes value, which then leads to a branch of dialogue that says, it looks like Homebridge is running, and then ask whatever, what else would you like to do? And it asks for a follow-up. So you can keep going with follow-ups and keep chaining these commands uh, back to back to back, utilizing a combination of if statements, and but it'll keep asking for follow-ups. But the real tricky thing you can do is chain two commands uh, in a single request. So if it asks what you'd like to do, you can say, check my CPU temperature and check my RAM usage, which are two actions that the Homebridge API has access for that I've programmed into it. So then it will go, okay, let's check the CPU temperature. So it checks the CPU temperature, pulls that, and says, hey, the CPU temperature is this temperature. Then it processes the next one because you use the word and, which acts as kind of a, uh, okay, if there's the word and, we're going to run a second request without uh, inputting for a second for or without prompting for another request and then it will run the second one which is here's the RAM usage does the calculation to determine what the size is and then spits that information back so basically that one command will look like to the user okay your CPU temperature is 50 degrees Celsius and it looks like that you're using four gigabytes of your eight gigabytes of RAM what would you like to do now yeah that definitely turns it into a, a lot different operation than what most people are used to programming into their shortcuts. And it makes it flow a little nicer, even nicer than what's possible with Siri directly. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, I do think Siri is a lot better with some of this stuff than what we can make with shortcuts. Um, a really good example of this is checking out uh, the coronavirus uh, diagnosis tool that it has. So if you were to ask the HomePod, do, do you have coronavirus, it goes through a series of like checks that you can do to determine if you should go get tested, which is really, really cool, right? 
Um, a Google Assistant does this too, and so does Alexa. That was a feature that came around pretty quickly after the coronavirus happened. But um, it's a lot more adaptive and a little snappier when it comes to pulling the information. But that being said, that kind of action doesn't mean we can't try to create that within shortcuts. And it's totally doable, you know. Like, you can, you can design that kind of approach to your shortcuts. And, and although the Homebridge tool is a really advanced example of this, you can even make simple examples of this. So, for example, the TCL Roku TVs just got HomeKit support. And uh, one thing that you can't do with HomeKit using Siri natively is change the input on a TV. It won't let you, no matter how hard you try. It, it refuses to let you. So one action you can do is you create an ask for input and then you change case and this ask for input action will prompt the user, what input would you like? And then using a few different if statements, you can then reference that capitalized ask for input action and you can design the words you want to use to change that input. So for my Roku TV, it's computer, PlayStation, and Switch. Those are the big three that I have as my inputs. So I can go, mm -hmm. hey, change it. Uh, it'll say, what input would you like? I can say, my Nintendo Switch. And it will switch to my Nintendo Switch. Oh, man, that doesn't scan. <laughs> but uh, it will um, switch to my Nintendo Switch. And then it'll just change that input dynamically. And then it'll peace out. And I'm ready to go. Really? That's cool. Because, yeah, I I have uh, I don't have a TCL TV. Mine's uh, Hisense. Okay. but. It just got support for HomeKit as well with the recent Roku update. Mm -hmm. So it's it's able to be turned on through Alexa, and it's available in HomeKit now. But I didn't realize, I guess, that you could do those extra pieces within shortcuts. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to you have to program, you have to give it each a HomeKit action for each input you want and specify the input you want. But and, and it can be it can feel a little tedious to make. But if you once you get it done, it like works pretty flawlessly, I found. Uh, in my experience, uh, it's pretty snappy. So those are just within the uh, control home action, yeah, then, just with... like to set scenes and accessories. Oh yeah, just uh, yeah, you pick the accessory, which is your TV, um, and then mm -hmm. you just when you click and hold it to select what you. So you add the accessory, and it shows the option. You turn it on, and then you also hold it, and you can select the input that you want for each action. So uh, for my computer input. I select the computer input in that HomeKit action. And then for PlayStation, it'll be the PlayStation. And then for um, the Nintendo Switch, it will be the Nintendo Switch. And then you can also, at least with mine, you can do the composite inputs, um, which I bought this TV specifically because it was a 4K TV in the modern era that had composite inputs, um, which sounds yeah. kind of crazy. But when you have old, old systems and stuff like that, you kind of want to have it as much as you can. So that's something that... Um, is nice to be able to switch between with that little action. That's really cool. I didn't realize that. And I, as you were explaining that, I kind of started punching the stuff into a new shortcut here. And that's tedious. You're right. But <laughs> it's nice to at least have that as an option. Yeah. I don't know why Apple doesn't include the option in HomeKit. But you know what? If you can make it, then if the user has a way to make that option, and uh, if the provider doesn't provide that option natively, if the user has the ability to create that action, then I consider it a bust, right? Yeah, you have to make the action, which isn't the worst thing in the world, but would be nice if it was native. But hey, you can make it, and you get to control how it works, too. Um, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's nice that it's there, for sure. 
but it would be nice to have a little bit more control over the home kit items. Yeah, I, I wish uh, just natively you at least change the input on, on TVs and stuff like that, just at least, or maybe even volume control, because that's not what it can do. HomeKit TVs don't support volume input. So, they're through HomeKit, which I do think is a little strange. But you can change the volume of it if it's an AirPlay 2 compatible TV. You just have to, I don't know, it's, it's complicated. I've never actually gotten it to work, but I've heard you can. Much like you can with HomeKit, change the volume of HomePods uh, automatically if you wanted to. So that's just a, an example of what you can do with HomePod shortcuts. It, it, I feel like non natural language processing will be kind of the, the big key here. As more people get these HomePod minis, you can really take advantage of just how the natural language processing can really benefit a lot of shortcuts, you know. Um, not a lot of people make shortcuts these days that are designed to run on HomePod. And that kind of leads me to, to I'm Up, which is my morning routine. And people will go, well, what's the point of having a morning routine when HomePods do the update feature now? I will say I actually really like the update feature. Uh, I don't know if you've played with it at all. I haven't much yet, but I know you had voiced that concern to me when you noticed that there was the update feature because it was kind of looking like it might replace I'm up or replace people's morning routines. <laughs> it kind but... of might. I mean, so playing around with it a bunch, having it on the HomePod and the iPhone, because you could do it on your iPhone too, um, playing around with it on all those fronts, it, it kind of serves a different niche purpose. So a shortcut like I'm up, what it's designed for is your morning kind of all-in-one briefing, right? It'll tell you weather, it'll set accessories, it'll you know, get you your reminders and all that stuff. It'll spit it all out for you. And with some user intervention, you can do some more complicated stuff. I And so IMUP really does serve a, a utilitarian purpose of just kind of being a kind of a super shortcut for this kind of stuff. Conversely, the update feature is more or meant to be used multiple times a day. And what I mean by that is you get up, you say, what's my update? It tells you your next event, a couple of reminders you have in the morning, tells you the brief weather up update and then you're off right it's really quick and it's really snappy too um which i think is really great for it uh and then the idea would be that you come home from work and then you say what's my update and it'll tell you your next thing and so on and so forth until you have nothing else left in your calendar or nothing else left for it to really tell you um it will play the news once a day i've noticed but for the most part its purpose isn't as much to be kind of a morning all-in-one briefing as much as it is like a Give me a quick, you know, update as to what's going on so I know what to do. Oh, that makes sense. So it's kind of uh, like a time window based. Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, it will tell you everything going on for the day, but that's not where it strength lies. It strength lies in telling you kind of what you have next going on. It, think of it as like an right. up next on Netflix kind of ticker. You know, you got that right there with up next. Think of it as kind of like that, but in a smarter system, if that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds like it would be a nice addition to a HomePod for sure, and also on the iPhone, because if you just want to know what you've got going on next, you can quickly ask Siri and get that response back. Right. And a shortcut like I'm up, which I'm in the middle of doing some kind of rework with it, because I, I, I realize that there might be some kind of sticking points with it. Now that more people have HomePods readily available, one thing I want to take advantage of is uh, multi-room audio, which is proving to be a bigger challenge than I expected. But, you know, um, one thing, like, the update feature can't do is control HomeKit accessories, um, which I think is 
really kind of unusual for it, right? Uh, as a as a whole, I do feel like that's a bit of a missed opportunity with it because if it's the first one in the morning, I would like it to turn on my lights, which is where I'm kind of doing a rework of I'm up a little bit to better suit that need. You tell it what to do in the morning and you just tell it to uh, turn on in the morning and then it will turn on those lights, um, you know, based on your schedule. That's, it'll probably be a ways down the road till I figure out a good way to implement it for everybody. But in the kind of test build, because I always run the test build of it, it, it's been kind of nice having the changes that I made to it. So yeah, that's where that kind of comes in. Yeah, that seems like it could be a challenge for some people. And it's nice to have, I guess, some direction moving forward on some of this stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Were there, were there any things you wanted to know about, like, uh, HomePod integration with shortcuts? Like, just kind of general sort of questions, I guess, that most people would have. I guess one of the, the big ones that I see a lot of questions on with HomePod in general is just kind of what it's capable of but I think I've got a good understanding of that now and one of the questions I have now I guess is more about the hardware that's inside because I know the your original HomePod that you've got I think you were saying before it's got its own OS right yeah. but it has a the like the chipset of an iPhone 6s mm -hmm. was that right yeah so the original homepod uses a yeah a chipset of the 6s and the minis actually use the same chipset for the apple watch series 5 that's interesting so they switched from using the iphone chipset to the apple watch well it is worth noting that the iphone 6s chipset is it's kind of aging a little bit, and I, I I don't feel like it's a detriment to the HomePod necessarily, because uh, I mean it's still more than fast enough for a smart speaker, and it's got a lot more guts than most smart speakers would actually have, even like comparatively to the newer Google stuff. It's a pretty beefy chipset, but with the HomePod Mini taking a much smaller system and package that is more capable technically, the Apple Watch Series Five processor is got a lot of guts. Surprisingly so. People hear Apple Watch processor and they think, oh, that's that's like really weak. But when you compare it to other smart speakers, it's it's actually a pretty capable chip and can actually act as a home hub, uh, which most other smart speakers don't have the ability to do with their limited processors. So, Right. Yeah, that's, that's impressive. I guess I didn't realize that uh, the Apple Watch was going to be that powerful to be able to control all that, but I guess why not? I mean, the Apple Watch is processing all sorts of data on its own anyway. Yeah, there. Uh, I mean, I'd probably be more worried if it used the same SIP as a Apple Watch Series Three. <laughs> but the the jump from Series Three to Series Four uh, processors for the Apple Watch, really, it's a huge g jump. I think people don't realize just how much faster the Series Five is compared even to the Series Four, all things considered. Yeah, I know it's impressive how the UI and everything works on the Apple Watch. I don't have one, but my wife does, and I've played around with it a bit, and it, it is amazing how quick everything oh, responds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, of, of course, this is coming from me, who used to have a Fitbit ecosystem <laughs> going I had here. A, I had and... a Pebble. I had both Pebbles, the Pebble 1 and the Pebble 2. Um I love that little thing yeah. to death, but it's just not as great as Apple Watch these days. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, with the issues that I had over the last, uh, I don't know, it was a couple of years probably now, but I had a Fitbit Blaze, and it's a common issue with all Fitbits since an update they pushed out a couple of years ago iOS 13 came out and there were some permissions changes and changes to how notifications came through and because of the way that Fitbit utilizes those notifications for phone calls it's a pretty common problem that after you answer a phone call the watch will just keep on vibrating <laughs> no or way. if you ignore the phone call it'll just keep on vibrating so it's extremely frustrating and the only way around it is to turn off the call notifications, which is unfortunate. Oh, boy. But, yeah. I, I so had I that kind of it. issue happen with my Series 3. Um, my Series 3 had this, has this issue where, uh, and I don't know why Apple hasn't fixed this yet. Because, uh, like, they have, I submitted logs, I went to the customer support about it. And I, I think I've told you about this, Mark, but... Um, my Series 3, and if you don't know, the Series 3 has like 8 gigs of storage unless you buy the cellular version, which is 16. Um, mine only had 8 gigs because I'm, I'm a poor man that didn't buy a, a cellular model. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, it would fill up with store. It would fill up its storage with nothing. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, it was the darndest thing. It would just sit there and it would just keep adding stuff and adding stuff. And then you'd get these full storage notifications back to back to back. It... It's bad. Um, and I do feel like Apple really doesn't care as much for the Series 3 because they want everyone to be on the Series 5, uh, 6, and SE models now because, I mean, those are now more affordable than ever and way more capable. And considering that the Series 6 and the SE have the U1 chip, which I'm hoping will get some advancements for the HomePod in that direction too because the Mini supports that too. And also the low-key hero of the Mini thread, which is its own conversation altogether. But... Um, I feel like they, they don't care as much about the, the Series 3. I feel like the install base is relatively small for it. Yeah, I agree. It seems like it's one of those things that's fading in terms of their focus. And it, I don't blame them. It's something that is just like with any other iOS versions or their devices. They slowly start losing their support and things as they age because it's just how tech works, right? Things start losing their relevance when they get older. I mean, yeah. Apple's been pretty good about supporting their, their phones and other devices for a long mm -hmm. time. Um, even the uh, Apple TV 3, the, the last of the ones before the, the new generation where you can install apps, even it continues to get security patches. And even older Apple Watches, like the original model, the Series 0 and the Series 1, are still getting security patches even though they don't support WatchOS 7. And it is worth noting that the Series 3 is on the tail end of mainline support. It will probably still continue to receive security updates for the next several years to come. So it's not... Um, it's not completely out of the world uh, realm of possibility that it'll still continue to get at least some support from Apple. I just feel like, you know, dealing with some of the more critical issues just isn't really on their high end. And I, I actually do think that's rather unfortunate because they really should be caring more about the customers in that regard. Yeah, I definitely agree because there's a lot of people that I'm sure would also agree with that, that there's people that aren't going to want to get rid of something that they spent a few hundred dollars on or more 
just because it's getting to be, you know, three, four, five years old, if it's still working, they would like it to continue working. But yeah, it's right. the unfortunate uh, problem, I think, that Apple has with having devices that last so long. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, boy. Yeah. But, you know, along with the, the HomePod discussion and the HomePod mini, there's actually a shortcut technique and something I'm actually really finding myself liking that I've been using the minis for that I didn't think I would use before this. Um, and that is using the HomePod minis to track really menial things. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so one of them is I take uh, a nightly dose of medication. Um, if I miss it, I am a cranky boy the next day. So and I'll, I'll put it that way. I, I'm not very nice to deal with the next day. And I don't sleep. So uh, there's, there's, a, there's a few things with that that are kind of important. And so one kind of shortcut, I can always post a link to what it is, but it utilizes Toolbox Pro. And Toolbox Pro is a really cool set of shortcut actions. I probably wouldn't use them for wide release shortcuts unless it does something that you can't do with native shortcuts actions. One example would be like NFC scanning. Uh, that's something you can't do with native shortcuts action. You can with Toolbox. But what I've been using Toolbox for as of lately is to create a shortcut that tracks whether I took my medicine. Because not only do I have to remember to take them, I often forget if I already have and I don't want to double up on the dosage. I created two shortcuts. Uh, one is I say to the HomePod, I took my medicine. And it will then create a date record in a global variable inside Toolbox. And then it will then tell you in this, <laughs> Siri has a funny way of saying it. It goes, good job. You took those pills like a champ. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I'm, I'm doing my best to replicate exactly how she says it. Because when you put in good job, she goes, good job. Like she's really condescending. <laughs> yeah, she has a funny way of speaking. And I assume you're using, um, is this with the speak text action? or I'm actually you... using a show result action is what I'm using. Oh, okay. So uh, when, you, when you want to have speak text actions with HomePod, you can use a speak action. But I actually find a show result action is generally better if you don't need input. Just because a show result can work off offline silently which is nice it doesn't work a lot yeah that is a good point yeah and i actually much i actually much rather and they're easier to set up too generally speaking less less things to fiddle around with and if it's a shortcut you're only going to be using with homepod then like i don't see why not you know what i mean there's really no other reason for it um but yeah she she says it in this kind of condescending way so that was pretty straightforward <laughs> right so it gets the date into the global variable and then it says that <laughs> says it right back to you and then i created a second shortcut that then accesses that global variable and this one's a bit more advanced it will look at the date it will determine if the date is today so if the uh if the date was at some point today and then what it'll do is it'll then say okay you took you took your medicine today if that date is today if not it says hey there you didn't take your medicine today go ahead and take it and then come back to me so uh, and say let it know so it will remind you to tell it once you've taken your medicine, so that you don't forget about it. You know, you just kind of clicks in your head, okay, I didn't take it. Um, believe it or not, it's been actually kind of helpful the last couple of weeks. I've found myself using it more often than not, and it's been rather helpful. Um, believe it or not, it's been actually kind of helpful the last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, that's a nice way to utilize shortcuts for something that is probably in the back of a lot of people's mind as a task that they don't really need technology to keep oh, track sure. of, but it's like, 
most people are probably going to end up forgetting to do things like that. I know that there's tons of things that I forget on a daily basis if I don't write them down or record them somewhere. So this is perfect usage of that, actually. And I'm sure having the HomePod listening there for you to give it a command just makes it that much easier. Right. And like I, and this kind of comes about because I've heard people say, like, use one of those pill weekly things, right? Those, like, little boxes that have, like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I don't like those. I hate them. They suck. You have to refill them every week. I don't want to do it. It's (laughs) tedious. Just let me pull it out of the bottle and take it, dang it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They're they're nice for, I guess, organization. If you have somebody that has a lot of different medications or different specific vitamins that they have to be taking, maybe – but yeah, if you're only taking one or two pills, I agree. The the pill box or tray, whatever you want to call it, is a bit of a hassle to have to deal with. Right. And it's, that was always my big deal with it. But, um, you know, and I've, I've even actually taken this one shortcut for pill tracking. I've actually expanded it to other things, you know, um, like uh, tracking when I last picked up dog poop in the backyard, which sounds totally stupid. And why would you want to track that? But sometimes I forget when the last time it was I done I did it, you know, so it'll be a little while since I've done it in the backyard and I just want to keep it clean so I can quickly ask, hey, when did I take, when did I do it last? And it'll tell you, hey, you did it last week on like Friday. That's if it's a really bad week. <laughs> and I haven't done it in a few days. Uh, but, you know, it, it is nice to have that kind of tracking so you know, okay, here's the record when you last did it, go out and do it. And it gives you kind of that organization so you you can take that concept and you can apply it to really anything that you want to keep track of and remind your, yourself of you know if you really wanted to you could uh, have it ask for input and you could record like how much water you gave a plant you know and you could do the when did you last water the plant did i water it today you don't want to overwater the plant but you don't want to underwater it too you know you can right. apply that same kind of knowledge to it without having to deal with ios reminders you know yeah, that's perfect. So are you just storing that information you said then inside of a Toolbox Pro global variable? Yep. You could use an iCloud uh, file as well. You could you could do one in shortcuts. You can do like a, uh, make a little JSON file that records that data. And that would be actually probably easier for most people. I just use Toolbox yeah. Pro because I already have it there. And if not one, I plan on releasing to the wide world. Right. So, and that's, that's my justification. Toolbox Pro shortcut stuff if you don't plan on releasing it wide. Yeah, totally agree. And I guess further on that, I know I've seen that some people have had issues where files get offloaded from their device from iCloud Drive. So utilizing something like Toolbox Pro, Gizmo Pack, or... Uh, Data Jar, too. Data Jar, yeah, that's the other one I was thinking of. So utilizing one of the apps like those, and I, I don't know, there might be another one I'm missing there, but... Using those tend to help because it stores the data in the app. But do you have any or have you experienced any sort of issues with HomePod accessing files on iCloud Drive like that where things get offloaded? Or is it not really much of a problem because it just reaches out to the server to grab the info? Well, I don't know if it's ever been an issue for me. Uh, in terms of grabbing files from iCloud because most of the files for the shortcuts I use are small enough that they could download really quickly and will error out. 
Although it is worth noting that I've had issues accessing files from iCloud Drive running shortcuts on an Apple Watch to the point where if I have a shortcut I like to use on a HomePod or my iPhone, if I want to use it on the Apple Watch, I have to actually make a version specific to it that doesn't rely on iCloud actions. Don't cause an issue for me because for the most of the shortcuts I use, it's usually a small text dictionary. But you know, if I ever run into it, that, that definitely would be something I'd like to kind of record down as to what might be an issue with these kinds of things. Most of my shortcuts that use iCloud files are, they really only use it for settings configuration. So I'm up as one and uh, my Homebridge tools, they use a, a settings file that I create to, to work off that. And they're used regularly enough that I don't have to make uh, any sort of concession with a file getting offloaded, you know? But that being said, I might have some older ones I could try and see if, see if it breaks that way. Yeah, yeah, and that's, the thing, I guess, if there are shortcuts that you're running on a regular basis, like the medication pill tracker that you were talking about, or I'm up, or anything really that you're running on, you know, more than uh, probably a weekly or biweekly basis, you're probably not going to have any issues with documents getting offloaded. But I wasn't sure how that worked on HomePod since I know on the phone, on like my iPhone and I think also on iPad as well, it can offload those documents from the local storage whenever it needs to for whatever reason it chooses. So I guess I just wasn't sure how that worked on HomePod, so that's good to know. Yeah. Well, I mean, all shortcuts run from the iPhone, so I would imagine yeah. if the file got offloaded and wasn't able to be downloaded quick enough, it would probably error out. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, only, only, only a theory, because all shortcuts ran on a HomePod are basically executed on the primary iPhone. Uh, this is decided, by the way, in iCloud settings, deciding which device you use to track your location. So you could have, I have two iPhones. One is a Pushka automation server. One is my personal one. My personal one is the one that tracks that information on, you know. But if I ever wanted to trade it out, I could do that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah. uh, with that, then... Um... I know a few of the shortcuts that I've made and um, obviously with your Homebridge manager, you're utilizing API calls and I know you've got your Pushka automation server like you just mentioned. So do those work pretty seamlessly on HomePod? This is a really interesting point of conversation because heck yes, they do. Um, so... Basically, API calls, and this is where it's really interesting, is that those actions perform really flawlessly on a HomePod, provided that you can access that API, right? <clears throat> so one really good example of something I would use an API call for outside of the HomeBridge Manager is I've used API calls for OpenStreetMap, for getting speed limit via Siri on my iPhone when I'm driving. That same API call does work on the HomePod. Granted, I don't live close enough to a road that registers as OpenStreetMap for it to work, but it does pull that record uh, really flawlessly. But the real key with API calls and Pushka Automation Server really is to shorten your shortcut actions when triggered from a HomePod. And I can kind of explain a little bit what I mean by that. Some actions with shortcuts can take a while to perform. For example, I have a shortcut that I designed that runs an SSH action on my main server to perform an internet speed test using speedtest.net via command line. 
uses a brew package called Speedtest CLA. And this could be used to quickly pull my internet speed test using Siri right away. And it spits out the information in the form of a push cut notification, which then I can take that push cut notification and run two other shortcuts, one to open the network manager or one to complain to Comcast via Twitter. <laughs> Uh, which by the way I have done that with Comcast and yes they do respond to it and yes it does work for a couple days until they throttle again so you have that (laughs) so uh, one thing is though is that running a speed test over command line it can take a little bit of time I think the average running time is anywhere between 20 or 30 seconds well if I'm doing stuff on the HomePod I kind of want to just get back to what I'm doing really quickly and I don't want to sit there and wait till it finishes and spits back the information. So what I do is I have it actually execute an API call or a execute pushcut server action. You can use either one of those and it will act it'll tell the pushcut automation server to run that shortcut. And then that shortcut will then send a pushcut notification back to me that gets me that information. So I could be in the family room and I'll notice some networking problems and I'll say, hey perform an internet speed test I can zip over to another room and check another device while it's performing that test and I'll get that notification to my watch that, hey, here's those results. And then you can perform these actions to to go with it from there. Or I can continue listening to music like I was and I don't have to be interrupted on that on that flow. I can just keep going back to what I'm doing. So utilizing API calls and push automation server, you can really kind of speed up a lot of shortcut actions because instead of waiting for those shortcuts to complete, you can now go on about your day. Oh, yeah, that sounds a lot nicer than having to sit there and wait for the various things to complete. Yeah, like another one too that I use, and I think I brought this up before, is a light reset automation. So I have a shortcut that I have on my devices that effectively looks at each room, determines occupancy in my home, and then because I often change the colors of lights and rooms, but I don't want to just have one scene that changes everything to the same color, because what I really want it to do is turn off the lights if no one's in there, and then change the lights to white when someone is in there. And when it's set to white, the lights will turn off automatically, where if it's set to a different color, it won't turn off automatically. And I have it set that way by design. So, effectively what I do is I have a automation that determines occupancy for each room, if the room is occupied, it sets it to the default white color. If the room is unoccupied, it turns off that light. So the good thing you can do is you can say, reset the lights, and then it throws that API call to the pushcut server, and then the pushcut server will then run that automation for me and uh, reset those lights without me having to wait for the action to complete, because it can take a bit to go through each room and then reset the light in that room. But by letting the pushcut server handle it and offload it, you really save yourself a bunch of times. So and then I can go and I can turn on the TV or what what have you and do my own thing. Yeah, that sounds like a nice way to handle that sort of a task. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, those actions can take a little while. Making the API call just to check the status and then change the status. I can see that taking a while, especially if you're controlling a lot of rooms and various devices. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and note too, uh, this same API call that we used to reference the Pushcut server can also be used in HomeCut, HomeKit advanced automations. So before we started recording, I was telling you that uh, using HomeBridge Nestcam, you can actually have uh, sensors, motion detectors for individual people's faces for a Nest Hello. So like one thing I do is when a package is delivered, which is one of those sensors, a package delivered, it'll actually change the lights in the room to green, wait 10 seconds, then it will execute that same action to reset the lights after 10 seconds. So you could effectively not only just use it for your HomePod, but you can expand the API call to work with other devices and services. Heck, you could even tie it into a Google Home action, if you a uh, Google Home routine if you wanted to. Uh, as an option. So it's really much more uh, versatile that way. But along with uh, Pushka Automation Server and API calls, one that I found really useful is a series of Roomba-based shortcuts that I designed for my HomePod. A good example of a, of a thing that the home, well, I think the best explanation is, is that HomeKit doesn't support Roombas by default. Uh, in fact, smart vacuums aren't a supported accessory type. To get them into HomeKit, you must utilize HomeBridge. Or in some cases, you can even use Home Assistant and use the HomeKit bridge. But generally speaking, you have to find a way to add it to HomeKit, and it's not a native accessory type. Utilizing a new plugin that was developed called HomeBridge Roomba 2, uh, de developed by a really awesome guy over on the HomeBridge subreddit, it is a successor to the HomeBridge STV plugin which comes with a few extra things like a contact sensor that's dummy that determines if the Roomba is docked, one that determines if the Roomba is running, and one if the bin is full. So not only do you have a switch to turn off and on the Roomba, but you also have contact sensors or dummy ones that tell you what the current running state of the Roomba is. So um, I have a link to it. it. I think I provided you with it, Mark, uh, with a a shortcut link that shows you exactly how you can use those contact sensors to determine the state of what the Roomba is doing. So, I can go to the HomePod, excuse us. Hey Siri, what's the Roomba doing? It looks like your Roomba is docked. You can use that to determine what the state of the Roomba is if you're not anywhere where you can see what it's doing. So it goes through all those actions pretty quickly. But to expand on it with Pushka Automation Server, I also have the Roomba enter a record into uh, uh, through Pushcut into an iCloud file that determines the time and date it last ran. Hey Siri, when did the Roomba last run? And it'll run that. The Roomba last ran on December 12, 2020 at 9.25 a.m. So, it can actually determine the last time it ran and give you the exact time. So what this can be useful for is a HomeKit automation that allows you to run the Roomba only once per day, but multiple different ways it can trigger unless it's already ran for that day. So um, I can get the information from the HomePod as to when the Roomba last ran. So I know, hey, it ran. But you can punch that information into HomeKit and then have it so if it already ran today, in my use case, I want the Roomba to go off when both my wife and I leave. But I also want it to go off at noon, but I do not want it to go off for both. So utilizing an API call with Pushcut, I can get that date. And if the date is within the last uh, 12 hours, the uh, one of the if the date was within the last 12 hours, the automation won't run. It'll skip over. But uh, if it is longer than 12 hours, it would then execute that action and then uh, run the Roomba to clean.
Um, and where it ties in with the HomePod is that you can use the API call to get that information back to you. So if you don't know if the Roomba's ran today, you can ask it and it pulls that information from it and tells you right here, here's the date. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a nice way to use that for uh, getting your Roomba tracking and all that stuff so that you know whether or not it's ran. Because I know that's okay. one of the, the struggles that I have currently with... Um, I don't have a HomePod, but with my Alexa setup that I have at home is I I have a set of shark robot vacuums and for whatever reason the Alexa skill is broken for it so <laughs> something like that might actually be quite helpful but I don't know I guess I need to look into whether or not I can tie shark in with Homebridge I think there actually is a plugin for it for shark robot vacuums uh even still most robot vacuums have uh MQTT servers uh, the Roomba does, and you can actually control it using a plugin called My uh, My MQTT thing. So you can do that if you wanted to as well. Uh, that's another option. Uh, the guys over in our Homebridge, they are amazing with helping you find plugins. Um, chances are, if you have something, someone has used a, has a plugin for it. Like chances are, that is the case. Yeah, I, I can imagine because if it doesn't have direct HomeKit support, somebody somewhere has probably already looked into it and tried to either get it working and had success, or tried and failed. So, I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah. So yeah, those are kind of like the big things I think that will really save a lot of time with shortcuts automations. I think that is probably one of the things that'll probably save a lot of time for people when it comes to making shortcuts for HomePod is that you can utilize other services in that kind of shortcuts ecosystem like pushcut or API calls, IFTTT, and you can get information dynamically to not just interface with shortcuts, but with other devices as well. It's really quite handy uh, that way. And the HomePod is a really great way to interface with that uh, daily. You know, I'm, I'm asking it all the time, weird questions that I shortcut things with the pushcut server, you know? Yeah. I do have one question, and I know it's one of the topics that some other people may be wondering about too. I know a lot of people implement updaters. There's multiple different styles of updaters. I myself have used a few different styles. You've used a couple different ones. But if there is a shortcut that somebody releases and they put an updater in it, what can you do? do, I guess, in terms of building the shortcut to make it work well with HomePod. Can you kind of test it out with Siri on your dev on your iPhone first to make sure that everything is going to work okay? Or do yes. you then have to interact with it on, on your phone like you would normally with Siri? Well, so it's kind of a, a, a two-factor thing because I actually have a couple of shortcuts with updaters. Um, one is I'm up. I'll pull it up here for me so I can explain how the, the flow works. So I use Lightning Updater for most of it, and I know it's kind of archaic and old by, the, by today's standards, but why I use it is because it's fast, and you can throw it at the beginning of a shortcut, which I feel like is kind of key with Siri updaters, mostly because if it's slow, then that slows down the performance of the shortcut, and when you're already using voice, which is kind of a, a slower medium of interfacing with stuff, you know, you need to save all the time you can. So... One, so Lightning Updater is kind of the version I use, you know, and it kind of ties back to using API calls, get, uh, you know, get the contents of, you know, text from Routine Hub, uh, then get the version and get the, and then compare it to the version that's in the dictionary. But what you can do to design your uh, updaters to work well with Siri is, I actually have 
with I'm up, it will ask. It uses an ask for input action that says, there is an update for I'm up. Would you like to update? And then if the person says yes, it'll actually open it up on the iPhone. And it will actually open the URL directly inside of um, Shortcuts. So, so I actually do it that way, but it does require you to be on your phone. And then you update the shortcut there. My recommendation is when you design updaters, have prompt the user to rerun the shortcut one more time. Um, just because if you if you have it continue from there, it will continue on the iPhone, which would kind of defeat the purpose of them running it on the HomePod. So just have them run it again. And I know it sounds a little bit more inconvenient that way, but generally speaking, I think I would rather that route than have them continue on the iPhone if they don't need to. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And that's one of the parts that gets a little bit tough to deal with when you're dealing with a shortcut that primarily interacts with Siri, or in this case, um, HomePod, which I guess is going to end up utilizing a lot of the the voice and microphone, right. speaker, all of, all of the same things that you would do with Siri on your phone. So that's right. good to know. I I didn't think about designing the updater that's in Kari actually to kind of work that same way. It works. The updater it tells you to go to your phone, but it's a, a little bit different, I think, in terms of how I implemented it than what it sounds like what you did. And, and too that the way I've designed this update you can actually go two ways well I didn't design a lightning update but the way that I implement it you can go two ways one is you can use an ask for input which is nice because it, it's less verbose but if you want to have specific actions that the user is maybe immediately aware of because updating isn't a regular thing a menu option is also really good to do that because it will tell you yes or no or whatever your third option is or whatever Oh, yeah. And then it can, I guess, similar to running them on the phone, it can pass that as a, one of the inputs to the end of the either choose from list or choose from menu action. So right. do, do those work quite well then if you just have a list of let's say yes and no and you do a choose from that says do you want to continue and what will it ask you at that point on the HomePod? Does it just say, "What do you want to continue, yes or no? And then you just choose one and it kind so, of interprets which one you meant? Listen menus are a really interesting thing with shortcuts. My general belief is that an ask for input action is nine times out of 10 better because you can design it to take different kinds of inputs. But menus specifically are very specific. So if you have a menu that says like, do you want to continue? Yes, no, maybe so. You have to have, be very specific in the reply. So you can't say yes, please. You have to say yes. You can't add stuff. Some, sometimes you can add stuff to it and it doesn't mind, but I find more often than not that it fails. So um, menus are for very specific input that you can give it. It will give that stuff verbosely and you can, uh, you can do it via a voice, but it's not as natural as using a, a speak uh, a, as a ask for input action, which you can then mix up however you want to do. You know what I mean? Like I was saying with the uh, with I'm up, you can actually have the ask for input reg uh, check across the list of acceptable uh, responses, and then go from there. That makes sense. Yeah, I I think that's the the better way to go for sure with a lot of the voice response and interpretation of what the user actually said 
when you're running it on your phone, it's nice to just have a button to press, but when it's open to freeform input via voice, then things get a little tricky. Right. And it notes you that iOS 14 really changed the game with this because I, and I don't think people quite remember as much, but you could do menu actions through Siri, but it was limited and list actions uh, and choose from list didn't actually work via Siri. You had to do that on the phone itself. Um, with iOS 14, all those actions are readily available to be done through Siri. Um, they are slower because it has to go through each of them and it will ask you if you want to hear more. Um, it, so it doesn't read the entire list to you. So it actually does work better in iOS 14 and who knows what 15, 15 will bring us you know, in terms <laughs> of improvements in that regard. But yeah, so list actions do work, but it is very specific and it, and it does wor uh, bear mentioning that, um, of course, if you use V cards, like you're not getting a graphic for it, you know. Um, and I don't know how V cards handle in uh, in Siri yet. I've never actually tried it. Yeah, I'm not too sure about that either. I haven't really used any of my shortcuts that have V cards in them. I've kind of stepped away from using V cards in a lot of my shortcuts just because I haven't found that it's a whole lot of use or it's not really necessary in in some of the stuff that has been the most popular like my instagram downloader it's just not necessary for the things that people are having to interact with the shortcut and i know you said that before when you're trying to make something that just works and it works quickly the less stuff that you have in it the better because loading some images in a menu doesn't take very long but it's extra things inside the shortcut that may take extra processing time, oh, which I guess sure. it's completely separate from the, the Instagram topic. But the whole processing time thing does remind me that I wanted to ask you a question about this because mm -hmm. I've noticed that on a number of shortcuts that I try to run in my car through CarPlay, or even, I think I had this problem just talking to my phone or talking to Siri directly on my phone. When I try to ask to run a shortcut and she starts processing some things, she will actually just reply before she even asks me the first question that I have programmed and say, sorry, I'm having trouble or sorry, try again later. And then I, I might try again a few seconds later and it might work or I might have to wait longer than that. Oh, so have, sure. you, have you ran into any problems with that on HomePod? I, I have to make a full confession. Uh, for the longest time, I was on the HomePod beta. And I think the last time I was on the podcast, I did explain that I was on the I. The HomePod beta and the iOS beta. My HomePods are no longer on beta. I waited till a public release matched up with the beta version I was on, and then I got off it. That's how you get off uh, developer beta for HomePods, by the way. So I am off beta with those, but my iPhone is still on beta. As uh, Although I'm in the process of changing that over to public release as of 14.3. Um, so when 14.3 is all the way out, I will be on public release. Uh, it is worth noting that a couple betas were really unstable with personal requests with HomePod. One problem you would get with the mini specifically would be uh, I'm having trouble with the connection when it would try to run a shortcut. Mm -hmm. Or if the shortcut action kind of glitched out and broke, it would keep saying that until you restarted the phone. 
and that HomePod, um, which is kind of a, a weird issue. Personal request for me, though, since being on the 14.3 release candidate, has been super stable, all things considered. And if there is an issue, it's nothing that a quick reboot of the HomePod wouldn't solve, you know? Okay, um, so a quick reboot usually helps out with that then? In my experience, yes. Um, I do want to say, though, for uh, users on 14.2, uh, that HomePod minis for other people in your house do not remember the status of personal requests. That has been my biggest issue. So for users on 14.2, they've had to go through and re-enable personal requests just for the minis. Regular HomePods are fine, but minis specifically have had an issue. I don't know if anyone else has had that issue on their end. It's one I've seen. Um, which I'm hoping 14.2 will kind of address. Yeah, that would be nice. I know there's a, a few things that I would like to see fixed, but I have no idea when they're actually going to be fixed. There's a couple small bugs that I've seen a few people mention on the subreddit yeah. and in Discord, but we'll see when they and, actually come out. And I actually have to hand it to Apple because I've used the Google Home ecosystem for an incredibly long time. I was an early adopter. Uh, I have original Google Homes, and I have just about every model except for the Nest Hub Max. And I'm actually in the process of getting rid of all my Google Home stuff, with exception to my two Nest Hubs, because uh, there really isn't a smart screen like that made by Apple. And moreover, there really isn't a smart display that does quite what the Nest Hub does. It's a really good smart display. But I've had issues with the way Google doesn't really address or fix issues. You know, with HomePod, you can do the intercom feature, which is similar to Google's broadcasting for those who aren't familiar with what intercom is. They're basically the same, except intercom will also send those notifications out to iOS devices that aren't HomePods. So it'll send it out to phones, watches, and Macs. Because a Mac isn't an iOS device, but we'll send it to those devices in addition. Um, I've noticed with the Google Homes that it actually doesn't deliver broadcasts, and it's not a networking problem. I have a pretty solid mesh wireless network now these days, but it's it's kind of an issue where they constantly break, and the HomePods have been really stable with it. I've noticed that while Google doesn't care about fixing problems, Apple is usually pretty good about it. Like, if there's a glitch and it's ruining the experience, they'll fix it. They'll do it on their time, but they'll fix it, unlike Google, who generally doesn't fix things unless it gets in the way with data collection. Yeah, that's one nice thing is at least, you know, when there are issues in general, they end up getting fixed at some point in time down the road. Yeah, there's a clear uh, roadmap, I think. I mean, granted, there's still a couple of shortcuts issues, like when you run a shortcut that hasn't asked for input action on the HomePod, sometimes it'll go, what should uh, string answer be? That, oh, that I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it too. Um, I've actually seen it less these days on 14.3 than I have. I still get it every once in a while, but I see it far less than when 14 first released. Yeah. Um, so I feel like it's on the mend. They're getting better at fixing that issue. But man, oh man, was it bad. <laughs> um, so that is that is definitely something to worry about if you... Um, if you are in an older version of iOS 14, try to move over to the newer ones as soon as possible because they do make that situation a lot more remedied uh, in, in future releases. It's good to know then. It, at least there's uh, light at the end of the tunnel, it seems. They make, they make progress. They at least fix their problems because Apple isn't in the game of collecting user data. They're in the game of providing products for user experience. You know, I mean, they got to keep you in the ecosystem. If the ecosystem doesn't work, then they're not doing their job. <laughs> that is true. 
I guess on our next topic there, automating volume control and music control. This is um, kind of a fun one because you can really take it where you want with this. Um, I do want to say that while other smart speakers have the ability for you to kind of automate volume control, nothing quite works to the level that the HomePod ecosystem can do in terms of like getting volume reset and set to values you want. Um, really, there's kind of two or three key ways to do this. Um, one is to adjust it within, a, within AirPlay, which I wouldn't even bother going that route. Another is to go through a HomeKit advanced automation. And you can do all the speakers to the same volume, or you could choose individual speakers to be at specific volumes, which I do. Um, for example, uh, one of my HomePod minis in another room needs to be a little louder because of the size of the room, whereas the one in my office, the regular HomePod, is kind of a beast. And so it, um, it tends to want to be uh, at a lower volume. So you can utilize a HomeKit shortcut to do that. But even more interestingly, because I set the volumes down lower certain times a day, sometimes I just want to reset the volume back to its default values, what I see is okay. So you can actually design a shortcut, this is the third way, uh, that actually goes through and resets that volume. You could either have it offload to a pushcut server, or in my case, it works pretty quickly as a native shortcut action ran from the HomePod. So um, it's really simple. You just take a couple, you just make a shortcut, and then you add a couple HomeKit actions. Let's see, pull up here. So you just add a couple uh, HomeKit actions. So I have some for each of the HomePods at different levels. And then you do a set custom volume with that device. And then you specify the volume you want with that device. And it will run through. And then for me, uh, I don't have it say anything. I have it just send a notification stating that it's done, and the HomePod will just say done on its own when it's when it when it finishes that up. So that's one way to do it. But then I also have a HomeKit variant that uh, does the same thing every morning because in the morning the volume's lower, but it, during you know early in the morning it's lower, but during the day like as we're getting up, I want the volume just to kind of tick on itself to a set volume. And I actually at the end of it because I didn't know how much to trust it, I created a push cut uh, notification that would get sent at the end to let me know that it worked. That's a nice way to utilize those. I know there's a, a lot of people that aren't really sure how they can even use those versus the regular show notification action, but that is a, a great use case. Oh yeah, you can, you can use push cut to, so like for example with the Roomba one that I was talking about that determines uh, if the Roomba should run. Sometimes my push cut automation server can't be reached, uh, maybe because it's busy with something, because uh, push cut automation servers can handle only one request at a time, um, which does happen on every so often. So if the automation server can't be reached, I actually have it send a push cut notification to my phone, um, and it will tell me, hey, the server can't be reached. The action was ignored this time around. Um, but you know, you can do the same thing to determine if a HomeKit automation or HomeKit shortcut uh, or advanced automation as they're called, um, RAM. And one example that I use this for is when my volume meter for the HomePod. Uh, so yeah, in the early days of HomePod minis, so like 14.2, uh, sometimes volume notification, volume changes didn't quite work. Although it seems a lot better with 14.1, uh, 14.2.1. Uh, 
Um, so I use a, a push cut notification to determine uh, whether or not it ran. So very yeah. helpful that way. Yeah. Yeah. How do notifications even end up working on a HomePod? <laughs> um, it's a lot of trickery. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I can make a couple of them happen here. Um, so one automation that I've designed within HomeKit, it's so complicated and nutty. So when I come home every day uh, from work, because my work is still having me come into the office, uh, much to my chagrin, I actually want it to uh, do a couple of things. I want it to change the lights to color looping, because I have a huge set of bulbs, and that uses IFTTT to do that. Um, so color looping happens, and I want that to happen for one minute. And then I want the HomePods to notify that I've arrived home. So how do we do this? Because HomePods can't actually natively do like a notification. So the trick is, is that I use a shortcut I made a while ago called HomePod Notification Recorder. And I don't know if anyone's seen that floating around. What it does, <laughs> it's so dumb. Um, you record your screen, and then Siri will say whatever notification you want, and you can add a sound effect to the beginning. Um, so then you record that, and then you run it again with that screenshot being input, and it will export it to audio. You then can save the file via iCloud, or to, uh, so I save it to my desktop on my, uh, on my Mac Mini server, is what I do. And then I use, this is so convoluted, I use an automator action. I use an automator action that when something gets dropped in this very specific folder, it changes the extension to .mp3 because for whatever reason, iTunes doesn't like .m4as with this. Really? Uh, it changes it to an mp... Yeah, I don't know why. It changes it to a .mp3, opens iTunes, imports the file, and then uploads it to my iCloud music <laughs> library. It's super low intervention because after I record it, I don't have to think about it for a while. Uh, <laughs> But there's a lot of stuff going on. This is why Automator is so cool. And AppleScript, really. Because uh, a lot of it's AppleScript. Uh, I say Automator, but it's really just an AppleScript program that, uh, script that I made. So it then uploads it to my iCloud Music Library. And then I can go to uh, the HomePod automation inside HomeKit, and I can tell it to play that music file. <laughs> what, and it only just plays it once. And you could be annoying and have it repeat infinitely. Um, so like a good example here, I'll get it to play here. We'll test it here. Lights change. And then the HomePod goes. Oh, come on now. There it goes. Hey there. Parker's home. Just like that. <laughs> nice, nice and easy. And then it'll stop color looping after about a minute. And then once the color looping stops, um, then it plays my very amazing uh, fun playlist that I designed. But you can design notifications like that by just making little music files that you then upload into uh, iCloud Music Library if you're an Apple Music user. And if you're automating music with a, with a HomePod, you do have to have Apple Music. That is a requirement, unfortunately. And um, yeah, really that's kind of the way to go about it if you wanted to make a just kind of a, an automation that does that. Yeah, that's an interesting way of utilizing both your computer and also the the HomePod to kind of play those files. That's interesting that it has to kind of convert those files over 
to MP3 in order for it to work properly, but those all sync through the iCloud music library, you said? Yes. And it is worth 100% noting that the issue that uh, why this is happening is more to do with uh, macOS Catalina and the um, music app because my server is older. It's a 2012 Mac mini. Um, it doesn't get big, sir. And from what I understand, this issue where uh, iTunes or Apple Music won't import a file unless it's an M4A, for whatever reason, is very specific to Catalina. It's it's a glitch that I've had that has never been resolved. Uh, shockingly so. The Catalina was kind of a buggy release, but... Yeah, it, it definitely... I definitely feel your pain there. I, I know we've discussed it before, but <laughs> my... Uh... My 2011 MacBook Pro is definitely starting to show its age now. I'm realizing I'm numerous <laughs> OS versions behind, but it still works great. So I, I don't really have any plans on replacing it at this point. Oh, for sure. Like, it, if the computer still works like my Mac Mini, my Mac Mini works wonderful. It's a good little, it's a good little server. <laughs> it's a little monster. In the next episode, we'll have some new content to cover, as well as some further questions and answers getting finally responded to after some time. So keep a watch out for that. And we'll make sure to post some updates on our Twitter and also in Discord. So if there's any other topics or things that you guys listening out there can think of that you really just want us to cover about HomePod, shortcuts, any of the stuff that we're discussing on the show or even stuff we're not discussing on the show. If it's something related to shortcuts, let us know and we can definitely take a look at getting that on the next show. See you on the next episode.